This is Archive Atlanta, episode 30, The Columbians. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey guys, happy Friday. Before getting into this week's episode topic, I want to tell you about something super fun that I got to do uh, last week. So about a month ago, my friend Jess asked me if I'd be interested in doing career day at the school where she works. Talk to the kids about doing tour guide stuff and podcast stuff. So of course I said yes, because I always say yes to everything. And then I think about it later. So later comes and I realize that I have no idea what I'm going to say to these kids. They send out the formal information sheet and it says I have to give a 30 minute presentation. So I start completely freaking out. I don't even make money from this podcast. So how am I supposed to engage a group of fourth and fifth graders? Oh, and I had an episode to record and edit that was due that week as well. Cue my incredible, wonderful, amazing, technology-oriented boyfriend who whipped up a pretty fun PowerPoint presentation, and from there I was able to get some thoughts together of what I wanted to say and share. And I think my goal was to tell these kids that you can do something fun on the side and make some money, if you're lucky. I told them about being a tour guide. They love the mural stuff especially. I told them about Auburn Avenue and John Wesley Dobbs. And some of the fourth graders had really cool family connections uh, to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, Like one of them, his mother had cooked for him. There was a lot of great, great grandma stories, which made me feel really, really old. Um, But I told them, you know, you guys are the keepers of these stories. And lots of them have phones and GoPros and gadgets I don't even really know how to use. And I told them to use those things to document these stories. At the end of each class, I ask the students to record a send-off for some of my future episodes. So if any of you kids are listening today, I'm not going to use the send-off today, which hopefully you'll understand why later. But next week, I promise that you're going to hear the fifth grade class sign off for me. So back to the topic for today's episode. This week, we're covering a darker moment in Atlanta's past. The Colombians were the first post-World War II neo-Nazi group to form in the entire United States. And although only formally in existence for about a year, their terror and effects were widespread in the city. And yes, it feels weird to have an episode about a domestic terrorist organization. But although it's difficult history to get through, it's important for people to know about. I think that seeing the actions of Americans in the past can hopefully shine a light on what fear and mob mentality can do. And this stuff is not ancient history. In the past few years, we've seen a rise in right-wing extremism, mass shootings in churches and temples, and numerous hate crimes. And honestly, it's depressing at times when you're a student of history and you read something and you realize our society seems to have taken three baby steps in the last 75 years. Most of us are familiar with the Ku Klux Klan, but less with the smaller and yet equally devastating groups that plagued Atlanta. In all of the history books that I read, I had not come across a mention of the Colombians until just a few years ago, and I think it was the book White Flight. And they were not alone, especially in the period before the war, Atlanta had numerous groups, uh, the National Genteel League, the Commoner Party, the Vigilantes, and the Order of the Black Shirts. The Black Shirts were founded in Atlanta by a man named Holt Gwimmer. 
Holt had been an ex-investigator for the KKK, and then during the Depression, the group um, would parade in the streets with signs saying, no jobs for N-word until every white man has a job. The group was kind of unable to officially charter in the state of Georgia, and they moved and dissolved. But Holt would stick around and make appearances later with the Colombians, and this happened with a lot of the early groups. The Colombians were strict fascist and anti-almost everything. Anti-Jews, anti-African-Americans, anti-communists. And anti-Semitism was reaching critical levels around the same time as the rise of Hitler. It's really easy to think of something that's occurring all the way in another continent, not affecting us. But the ideals of the Nazi party were reaching America, and there were Americans that believed that Hitler's cause was great, and they were disappointed in the defeat in the war. After World War II, there is a general lessening of public anti-Semitic views, but the South was an interesting climate. The famous Scottsboro Boys trial took place in the 1930s, and the attorney representing these falsely accused um, young African-American boys was a Jewish man named Samuel Leibowitz. So this connection of Jewish people with Southern blacks is one that would fuel the hatred in groups like the Colombians and the KKK. One of the organizers of the Colombians actually is quoted as saying, quote, the Negro would behave himself if it wasn't for the Jews, end quote. Let's go to Atlanta in this post-war era. World War II was fought from 1939 to 1945. For those white men that had fought in the war and were returning home, there was very much a desire to have things the way they were. In their absence, Many white and black women had taken to working outside the home, many in the war efforts, and the end of the war meant a loss of jobs for these new workers, but white men were worried that black men who had tasted freedom in the sense, so seeing a different world overseas during the war, they were worried they were going to come back to the South with different expectations. So there was a renewed vigor to keep the status quo. And around this time, you see waves of violence across the South. So in 1946 alone, there are six lynchings in the state of Georgia, which is one of the lowest numbers in the area. But the reality is the world had changed. The Atlanta airport is growing, people are moving into the city, and there's just no way that women and African Americans are going back to a world that they left behind five years earlier. Another big thing happening in the city is the rise of the black voting power. I spoke about this at length, I think, in the John Wesley Dobbs episode, but in 1946, which is the year after the war, the number of black registered voters goes from 5,000 to 25,000. One of my favorite Atlanta podcasts is called Buried Truths. If you guys don't listen, hit pause right now search and download. It's incredible. But the first season um, is involving a cold case that was about the murder of black men in rural Georgia that were trying to vote. The Colombians are interesting because they only existed formally for one year, and in the grand scheme of things, that's a blip in time, but their involvement in the Atlanta story and their smaller acts of terror keep their legacy lingering. In the summer of 1946, attorney Vester Ownby walked into the Fulton County Superior Court with a petition on behalf of three men. Now, Vester was actually previously associated with the black shirts that I mentioned earlier, um, but this is at least a decade later. 
and the charter in his hands was signed by Judge Frank Hooper, and it would make the legal formation of the Colombians. Later in life, Judge Hooper would say that he had no idea what he was signing. He didn't even read it. But the document stated that the purpose of this new group was to form, quote, a patriotic and political group for the purpose of perpetuating the American national spirit, end quote. It said a lot more. I don't know if that judge read it or not, but maybe it would have made a difference. And let's talk about these three men on this charter application. I think the most surprising thing that these were all Northerners or had lived in the North. And the default stereotypical idea is that they had to have come out of a cave in rural Alabama or something, but that's not the case. When you read these bios, these are educated men, and it was the opposite of my assumptions. Emory Burke was in his early 30s, a native of Montgomery, Alabama, but a veteran of New York City hate groups. He actually uh, moved up there in his 20s and was really big into the scene. He was on the staff of The Storm, which was a racist newspaper in the 1930s. Now, his co-founder was named Homer Loomis. Homer was the son of a wealthy New York City attorney. They had a Park Avenue address, and he had been kicked out of Princeton or failed out of Princeton. I'm not quite sure which one's accurate. Scandalous divorce, remarried, um, and then used his wife money to move to Virginia and buy a farm. In the 1930s, he begins to get interested and involved with right-wing extremist groups. After serving in World War II, he moves to Atlanta with the intention of starting a fascist movement. And you may be asking yourself, why Atlanta? Aren't we supposed to be the city that's too busy to hate? But the city actually attracted crazy people and crazy groups like this because it was known to be a clan home. In the sense that Klansmen dominated the police force, but there were also Klan members in numerous city positions. So there's an ability for the Klan to have a multi-class coalition. So it's not just poor white men, you have um, upper-class white men in power. And that made it really appealing for groups like this to operate in the city. Loomis and Burke actually connected while they were both working as line cooks at the Varsity. The third person on that list, his name was John Zimmerly. We know very little about him. So he was a veteran attending um, Georgia Tech on the GI Bill. And I don't know, you know, maybe he went to get some varsity. That's how they met. <laughs> I don't think anyone really knows. These three men organized the Colombians, and then they set out to recruit members. Now, they had three qualifying questions for anyone that was interested. The first question was, do you hate N-word? The second question was, do you hate Jews? And the third question was, do you have $3? At the time, the KKK membership going rate was $10, so the cheaper fee was a tactic for more members. The group had a standard uniform, it was a khaki brown shirt, a thin black tie, and an armband with insignia of a lightning bolt. And this is very similar to the same that um, Hitler's guard wore. And some even got that symbol tattooed on their bodies. When they saw each other on the streets, they would salute with the Nazi salute. Members were required not to drink, not to smoke, and not to have sex. They had pledge cards to sign. Um, they would actually hand these out to other people, not, not just members. But these little pledge cards had a pre-printed statement on them that said, quote, I want the Colombians to continue to fight for the American white working man, end quote. 
Their recruitment was centered near Atlanta's mills and factories, and they were pandering to the lower class working whites that were angry um, about competing with black men for jobs. They were frustrated young veterans, and some of those were frustrated that they couldn't fight for whatever reason. And they're just generally anxious about the status quo, like I said earlier, and the privilege of their white masculinity. What did that mean in post-war America? The first mass meeting of the Colombians is held on August 26, 1946, at the East Point Auditorium. By the fall, there are over 200 members, but apparently in the headquarters they found 800 applications. So I don't know why those other people didn't get in. The headquarters are listed as being at 82 Bartow Street. Now in some places it's listed as Barstow, so I'm sure like other people, I was dying to figure out if this still existed. And the most I can find, because we all know Atlanta street names are disaster, um, there is a Bartow Street inside Fort Pearson. Um, I don't know what that street looks like now, but 82 Bartow Street was the address. Inside these headquarters, it was described as dirty and dingy. There's about 50 copies of Mein Kampf, as well as a tattered Confederate battle flag and a few cots. I'm not sure how regularly people were sleeping there, but it was a place that some of them lived. Regular large meetings are held at the Plumbers and Steamfitters Local 72, which was a union hall at 198.5 Whitehall Street. Now, they rented this out. They had an agreement to rent this out. It was also where the KKK held their Monday meetings, so apparently they were renting it out to all the hate groups in Atlanta. The Colombians had a hierarchy, so Bartow Street was the command center, and then after that there were captains, then lieutenants, and then sergeants, um, and the order sort of went from the top to the bottom. The goals were very clear. They predicted to have control of the city of Atlanta government in six months, they would control the state of Georgia government within two years, and the federal government would be controlled within a decade. All black citizens of the United States were to be voluntarily or involuntarily shipped back to Africa, and all Jews were to be rounded up and sent to Madagascar. Strangely chosen because it was an island, but it was far away enough that it wouldn't bother any of the Arab countries. After shipping off the Jews, they would then confiscate their wealth and redistribute it among all the, quote, real Americans. And their main goal was an American nationalist state, one race, one nation. The scariest part is that they opened chapters in Philadelphia, New York City, Indianapolis, and Gary, Indiana. They would print and distribute propaganda detailing the Jewish plot for world domination. They would encourage white families to phone in when they saw black families moving on the same street, or to report, quote, troublesome Negroes, end quote. In the sense that the KKK valued their privacy and their secrecy, the Colombians were the opposite. They were like the rowdy rabble-rousers. They would parade in public, yell from the street corners. Um, they just were not as sophisticated as the Klan was. When you return to Atlanta after the war, the veterans caused quite a housing shortage. If you ever study neighborhoods, you can see this wave of new housing that gets built in the late 40s, especially in Inman Park. So when you're in Inman Park, you see the um, old Victorians, and then the infill housing of the short, usually they're ranches, those are World War II houses. 
For African-American Atlantans, that housing crunch was further exasperated by the fact that they were geographically limited to where it was acceptable to live. Racially segregated zoning was a real thing in the past, but even when it was legally overturned, there was certainly a non-formal agreement of who lived where. For the Black population of Atlanta, the most populous residential concentration was over near or on Ashby Street. Now, Ashby Street is now known as Joseph E. Lowry Boulevard, um, but in 1946, 40% of Black Atlanta lived there. So the term Ashby Street became synonymous with saying Black Atlanta. As Black families began to stretch their confines and purchase homes on traditionally white streets, the Colombians were there. And these most well-known acts of violence were related to African Americans moving in. They believed and preached that white Atlanta vets could not find housing because the evil real estate dealers were selling their homes to Blacks and thus forcing whites to move. In October of 1946, Clifford Hines, a Black man, was walking home through Mechanicsville when six Colombians accosted him and beat him with a Blackjack. Now, I had to look that up. Um, it's like a flexible billy club. So like a leather-covered stick, um, almost looks like a small whip. Hines survived because the police just happened to appear in the nick of time, but they arrested Hines, the man that was attacked, and only one Colombian named Ralph Childers. Ralph apparently had some Colombian insignia in one of his pockets, and so the two were arrested. Now, after um, getting out on bail, Childers really came home to a hero's welcome. Uh, in his past, he admitted that he had beaten a dozen black men, dynamited several houses, and he was actually caught plotting to blow up a conference of African-American Baptist ministers. Now, this plot, the only reason they're pretty sure it didn't happen was that they just couldn't find enough explosives. In the same month on the day of Halloween, Goldsmith and Minnie Sibley, an African-American family, had just purchased a home at 333 Ashby Street. They woke up in the middle of the night to their home being bombed. This was a drive-by bombing, so the Colombians drove by in a car, threw the bomb out of the window. Um, it demolished the front porch along with most of the front door and all of the windows busted. On November 2nd, Frank Jones and his family attempted to move into a home at 727 Garibaldi Street. A large crowd of Colombians gathers on the street to intimidate them and hold signs saying, quote, white zone. I posted this picture quite a while ago. It's in a book that I read. There is a photo of this event happening in real time. So the entire street is full of Colombians. The police are there. Um, and I will repost that on the website so you guys can see. Another Colombian that you may not know by his name, but probably by his action, is George Michael Bright, another northern transplant from Rochester, New York. He was an industrial engineer at the Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill. Now, although the Colombians did not exist in 1958, Bright was tried in the bombing of the Jewish temple on Petrie Street. Now, his first trial ended in a hung jury, and in the second trial, he was acquitted. After this fall season of violence in 1946, Atlanta's government begins to crack down. The charge was led by Mayor Hartsfield and Police Chief Marion Hornsby. Now, interestingly, their motives were not exactly altruistic. For Mayor Hartsfield, he was banking on re-election by the African-American vote. 
so he knew he had to take care of this problem. And for Hornsby, who was a card-carrying KKK member, he was working to rid the city of this rival group. Assistant Attorney General Dan Duke had already been working hard on revoking the Klan's charter, so he set his sights on the Colombians. Now, only the state of Georgia had the power to revoke this, so Governor um, Governor Arnold was the governor at the time. When he gave the go, it wasn't too long after that an Atlanta jury would take 29 minutes to revoke the Colombians' charter. To further add insult to injury, the Colombians were added to the House Un-American Activities Committee. Loomis stood trial in 1947 on charges of inciting a riot, assault, and usurping police powers. He was sentenced to two years on the chain gang and six months in prison. Emery Burke sentenced to three years. The thing is, their cases went straight to appeals, and they would not serve any time until 1950, so three years later. In those three years, they tried to reorganize. Uh, They had an organization called the American Bilbo Club. Unsurprisingly, though, the Klan was really able to mobilize and scoop up these remaining members. So they had a long list of shared hatred. It wasn't hard to go from being a Colombian to a Klan member. And the KKK was actually much better at patrolling black neighbors since they had policemen in the ranks. And I do hope to do an episode about the Klan in the future, um, especially its connection with the city of Atlanta. So there you have it, the story of the Colombians, the short-lived neo-Nazi group formed in Atlanta, and its legacy of hate and violence. I hope you can understand why I didn't want to throw my fifth graders at the end of this um, kind of dark and depressing episode. But I thank you for listening, even to the difficult stories. I appreciate everyone's ratings and reviews and for those sharing the podcast with their friends and family. Hope everyone has a great weekend. I'll talk to you next week.